already. We've spent a couple weeks in this parable, and we've been talking about the practice of stewardship, generous stewardship. What is it? How does it work? Why is it important? What did Jesus have to say about it? Like worship and discipleship, the other themes we've looked at in January and then in February, stewardship is an upward-directed practice in our lives that serves to deepen our relationship with the Lord. It deepens our trust in Him and His trust in us. And at CCV, we're committed to focusing in particular on four different and specific upward-directed practices that deepen our relationships with God. Worship, discipleship, stewardship, and prayer. Each of the four of those play a pivotal role in what we do together as a congregation. But of course, they also have an individual dimension. Each one is significant for each of you to practice in the context of your own personal relationship with the Lord. And it's as we practice these four biblical priorities together that we experience increased growth and fruitfulness in how we relate with God through faith in Jesus. They, they serve to keep us engaged with the Spirit of God and walking in the Spirit. So let's talk some more about stewardship then and what this parable of the unrighteous or dishonest steward teaches us about the practice of generous stewardship. We've worked our way through the parable itself and we've begun to consider Jesus' comments at the end of the parable. In fact, last week we talked about the first of those comments uh, found in verses 10, 11, and 12. And so this week I want to focus with you on the bit of this commentary by Jesus that we've yet to come to, yet to really spend any time thinking about or talking about at a deeper level. So look with me specifically at verses 13 to 15, the end of Jesus' comments following the sharing of this parable. He says there, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So what do these comments amount to? What's Jesus telling us to be careful about? There's really a warning implicit here. And I'd like to sum it up this way for you. I think Jesus is saying, in essence, if you don't master how you use money to serve God, money may become your master. See, there's only two options here that Jesus is describing. Either you are the master over your money or your money is the master over you. Jesus' statement in verse 13 clarifies the danger of being a poor steward. And he puts it really in no uncertain terms. Either either you master your money or your money will master you. Which will it be? Either you're the servant of your money or your money is your servant. But Jesus also makes the point here that 
if you want your money to be your servant and not vice versa, then you have to be God's servant. In other words, if you don't master your money, it will become an idol in your life that can readily take the place of God. But if you love God first and foremost and seek to honor him in all things, then money will have its proper place in your life. See, what makes this statement, I think, particularly profound and poignant is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Of course, he's talking to his disciples, but it's obvious from what he says in verse 14 that the Pharisees, the religious elite of Judaism in the first century, are listening in as Jesus teaches. In fact, it's probably likely here that he's telling this parable and giving this teaching largely for their benefit as much as for the benefit of his own disciples. Luke tells us in verse 14 that the Pharisees who loved money heard all that Jesus was saying and they were sneering at him. Don't you love that word? I mean, it's not a a pretty picture. It's not a compliment to be sneering at someone. But you know what it is, right? It's, It's that look you get on your face when you know that someone is confronting you and you don't like it. Of course, the Pharisees heard all that Jesus was saying because as much as Jesus' disciples, they were the ones that he was speaking to. He was telling the story for their benefit. And then Jesus responds to their sneers with this amazing statement at the end of the story in verse 15. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Think about those words. That's a profound insight into the heart of God. Because it goes to show that that being religious on the outside does not preclude you from being an idolatrous lover of money or things on the inside. You can look the part. You can do all the right things, say all the right things, make your appearance at church on Sunday. But as Jesus indicates, God knows what lies beneath the surface, in the heart of each person. He sees what people really value, what's dear to them. And no matter how religious we may appear to be on the outside, God sees through to the heart. So the question then, that Jesus is provoking in each of us really amounts to a heart check, I think, doesn't it? Are we, like the religious Pharisees in this regard, being mastered by our love of money or things, or are, are we true lovers of God? Are we true servants of God? Are we truly devoted to God first and foremost so that money is our servant and his servant as well? The question Jesus is posing for each of us to think about is, are you stewarding your money in such a way 
that your relationship with the Lord is clearly the most valuable thing in your life? Do we value what God values? Or do we value what the world values? And, you know, let's be honest. These are provocative questions. These are deep questions. Jesus is not just toying around with superficialities here. He's driving right to the very heart of what motivates you. What do you desire? What do you truly value in life? So the basic question is, who's your master? Is it really the Lord? Or might it be something else? Have you mastered the proper use of your money because God is your master? Or are there indications, if you're really honest with yourself, that that money has a place in your life that it might not really deserve? And then, of course, all of this begs the question, what do we do to keep money in its proper place? What advice is Jesus giving, other than simply warning us not to love money too much, What's the solution to the problem? What are we to do to keep money as our servant? And here, I think it's helpful to look at some other references because Jesus doesn't directly answer that question in Luke 16, but the Bible does in many other places. In fact, there are lots of references on the subject of money and stewardship, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that speak to this challenge that each one of us faces about the place of money in our lives. Let me give you two solutions to the problem of keeping money in its proper place so that you're its master. The first one comes to this, and it's, it's really pretty simple. To keep money as your servant instead of your master, you have to find your contentment in God. You have to find your contentment in God himself. Listen to this advice from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 5, puts it this way. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Isn't that fascinating? What a profound insight. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. These words take us back to what we spoke about last Sunday, that there's a a critical distinction to remember between what's perishable and what's imperishable. What, What won't last and what will last forever. What's eternal and what's worldly. God and our relationship with him is eternal and imperishable. So when we learn to value God's presence with us more than anything else in life, we can be content in him, with him. And we won't be driven by a discontentment with whatever possessions or money we don't have or do have. The author of Hebrews is saying, in essence here, remember the promise of God to be with you. 
in all circumstances. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's the heart of God for you. So even when you're feeling the struggle of not having enough, even when you're dealing with fear or anxiety because you feel that you need or want more money or more of something else, the presence of God with you in that moment is the most important thing to focus on. Are you contented in life with whatever you have or don't have right now? Is your attention and preoccupation squarely on the presence of God with you? Or is it on something else? Think about that idea of being content with whatever you have or, or don't have materially. And one, one thing that's really significant to think about and realize here is that you don't have to have a lot of money or possessions to be a lover of money, right? In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. This might surprise you. You might think in your mind, oh, it's the people that have lots of wealth, the millionaires or the billionaires of our world that are really the greedy materialistic people that Jesus is confronting here. No. No, what he's saying applies just as well throughout the income spectrum, right? It doesn't matter what your net worth is. You can struggle with the desire for money or things even if you have very little of them. So just as you can look religious or non-religious and be a lover of money, likewise, you can look rich or poor and also be a lover of money. Don't fall into the temptation to justify yourself, like the Pharisees did, on the basis of your net worth being relatively low. Don't think, well, I don't, I don't have enough money to really love it. Sometimes, It's that place of desire and need that provokes us to be preoccupied with what we don't have instead of what we do have. You see, greed and materialism in our lives are equal opportunity strongholds. They don't care how rich or poor you are. They don't care whether you have too much or not enough. In either case, They want to be the master of your thoughts and desires. So what I'm saying is is that it's not only those who have too much that are guilty of placing money on the throne of their lives. Sometimes the fear of not having enough is one of the primary ways that materialism can manifest in our lives. Here's an example. Consider this amazing statistic It's been said that 70% of all Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Just enough to pay the bills and spend from week to week or two weeks to two weeks. And I would venture to say that most of the people that fit in that category are probably thinking to themselves, I'm not rich. I I can't even save any money. I'm just living from paycheck to paycheck. I'm not rich. And yet, in comparison to the way that people around the globe live and what people around the globe make, we are incredibly rich. I mean, probably within the top 5 to 10% of income globally. So not having enough 
or feeling that you don't have enough never justifies being fearfully preoccupied with wanting more. You can love money and want more of it no matter where you are on the income scale. So the first key then to keeping money in its place as your servant and not your master is to find your contentment in the presence and provision of God. Are you content with what you have or don't have? Because you realize the most important thing you have is the presence of God. Are you content with his presence? Or are your desires fixed on material things instead of spiritual things? Let me take you to one other parallel passage here that speaks to the same thing, but also takes us a little deeper with this insight. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul's writing to his prodigy, Timothy, and really mentoring Timothy as an up-and-coming pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul says some things to Timothy that are really helpful and really insightful, and I think they're directly connected to the teaching of Jesus in Luke 16. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11. Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now notice, as you think about those words, that Paul didn't say that money itself is the, is the root of all kinds of evil. He's really echoing here the words of Jesus in Luke 16. He says, the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's the same problem that Jesus was addressing with the Pharisees. What Paul explains here helps us to understand what the love of money leads to. It leads to destruction. It's a trap that ensnares us and takes us captive to to foolish and harmful desires, Paul says, that eventually lead to ruin and destruction. So how do we avoid that trap? The answer came in the very first verse, verse number six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So Paul's approach to this problem of loving money is complementary to Jesus' approach. They're talking about the same danger. They're offering really the same warning. The value of stewardship is consistent throughout the word of God. So let me take the liberty then to connect what Jesus said in Luke 16 with what Paul says in 1 Timothy just a bit further, because here's where we come a few verses down the page to a second solution to the problem. Look with me at verses 17 through 19 in 1 Timothy chapter 6, because Paul continues to address this same theme 
and offers another insight just a bit further down the page that's a second solution to the problem. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see what Paul's suggesting? Here's what it amounts to. To keep money as your servant instead of your master, give generously. Give generously. We've seen that Jesus gave his followers clear warning about the idolatry of money and possessions. And in the process, he pointed out that the the religious Pharisees exemplified being lovers of money. So the question is, how how do we avoid that danger, particularly in a very materialistic and, and prosperous culture like our own? If we don't want money to become our God, how do we keep it in its proper place as our servant instead of our master? And so the first step is to be content with whatever you have or don't have because you find your contentment in the presence of God. And then secondarily, Paul's saying, give generously. Give generously and be willing to share whatever you've received. This is the second great answer to the question. Beyond finding our contentment in God, Paul says, command those who are rich in the present world to be generous and willing to share. So so why is this important and how does it work? Well, to put it simply, giving money to those in need and or to the work of God's kingdom keeps money as your servant. It puts it in its proper place. It demonstrates that you place higher value in blessing others and in serving God than in keeping money for your own benefit. So it's a practical act. It's a bit, in a sense, it's a bit like fasting in the spirit, right? Why do we fast from food during a season of prayer? And how does it add power to our prayers? It's an act of self-denial. So choosing to fast from food while you're praying is a way of saying, God, my, my, the most important food in my life is to do the will and finish the work of, of God, just as Jesus said. It's a way of denying what comes natural to you, what, what your flesh desires, so that you can express a higher desire for something else, a hunger in the spirit. In the same way, giving to those in need or to the ministry of God's kingdom is an act of self-denial. It's a way of sacrificing something you've received to remind yourself that money has to stay in its proper place. 
It actually breaks, in that sense, the stronghold that money and possessions can have over our thoughts and desires. By giving generously, we're choosing to place the value of money below the value of serving God. We're choosing to use its power for godly purposes instead of worldly purposes. We're investing in and storing up for ourselves eternal rewards instead of earthly rewards. Let me give you an example that Jesus himself highlighted on this theme. And I think it's an incredible story, an incredible illustration. And this one is not a parable. It's not a story that Jesus made up to teach some lesson. It's something he actually observed. He's in the courts of the temple. And we find this story in Luke chapter 21, just a few chapters beyond the reference, the parable that we've been looking at in Luke 16. It's a story known as the widow's offering. Luke 21, 1 to 4. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said to his disciples, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Isn't that amazing? I mean, can you imagine the mindset, the dedication, the faith, the sacrifice involved in a gift like that? You see, this story illustrates the nature of generosity. Generosity isn't so much about how much you give, specifically a particular dollar amount. It's about how much you give in proportion to what you have. For one person, a $100 gift to someone or to the Lord might actually be more generous than a $1,000 gift from somebody else. So true generosity, Jesus says, is sacrificial. It's giving beyond what's comfortable or easy. And there's something else that I think is incredible about this illustration, this story that Jesus tells. It comes right back to the principle of trusting God, placing him first. Do you think God took care of that widow's needs because of her gift? She likely never got rich. But I would venture to guess that she never lacked what she needed either. And if you stop to think about it, part of her reward is the telling of this story. We'll never know her name. And yet she's famous, in a sense, the world over because Jesus told her story. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? What an honor that Jesus would recognize her gift, call it out, and and highlight it, not just for the benefit of his first disciples, but for all of us. Here we are thousands of years later reading about the gift of two copper coins that this woman put in the offering at the temple. She 
probably never knew until she arrived in heaven that, that she'd become an example to millions of people the world over down through the ages. But her gift was so honorable to the Lord that it lives on now in history. So the secret then to avoiding the love of money is first to find your contentment in the presence of God with you and then secondarily to give generously, give sacrificially. As a case in point, let me close with a story that I read. And uh, it's a story I shared several years ago. A few of you may remember it. But just a great illustration of generosity and, and the lesson that comes from giving and the reminder that it is to us about keeping money in its proper place. It's a story that was written up by a woman uh, because she had to write a paper for one of her college classes and she had this particular experience uh, the day before that the paper was due and decided to write her paper about this story and it's been passed on since that time. So she wrote this. I'm a mother of three ages 14, 12, and 3. And I've recently completed my my college degree. The last class I had to take was sociology. The teacher was absolutely inspiring with the qualities that I wish every human being had been graced with. Her last project of the term was called Smile. The class was asked to go out and smile at three people and then document their reactions. Well, I'm a very friendly person and always smile at everyone and say hello anyway. So I thought this would be a piece of cake, literally. Soon after we were assigned the project, my husband, my youngest son, and I went out to McDonald's one crisp March morning. It was just our way of sharing some special playtime with our son. We were standing in line waiting to be served when all of a sudden everyone around us began to back away. And then even my husband did, too. I didn't move an inch, but an overwhelming feeling of panic welled up inside me as I turned to see why everyone was moving away. As I turned around, I smelled a a horrible, dirty body smell, and there standing behind me were two poor, homeless men. As I looked down at the shorter gentleman close to me, he was smiling at me. His beautiful sky blue eyes were full of God's light as he searched for acceptance in my eyes. He said, good day, ma'am, as he counted the few coins that he'd been clutching. The second man fumbled with his hands as he stood behind his friend. And I realized that he was somehow mentally challenged and that the blue-eyed gentleman was his caretaker, his salvation. I held my tears as I stood there with them. The young lady at the counter asked what they wanted. He said, coffee's all, miss, because that was all that he could afford. If they wanted to sit in the restaurant and warm up, they had to buy something. He just wanted to be warm. Then I I really felt it. The compulsion was so great, I almost reached out and embraced the little man with the blue eyes. And that's when I noticed all eyes in the restaurant were on me, judging my every action. I smiled, and I asked the young lady behind the counter to give me two more breakfast meals on a separate tray. 
Then I walked around the corner to the table that the men had chosen as a resting spot. I put the tray on the table, and I laid my hand on the blue-eyed gentleman's cold hand, and he looked up at me with tears in his eyes and said, Thank you. I leaned over, began to pat his hand, and said, I didn't do this for you. God is here working through me to give you hope. I started to cry as I walked away to join my husband and son. When I sat down, my husband smiled at me and said, that's, that's why God gave you to me, honey, to give me hope. We held hands for a few moments at that time, and we knew that only because of the grace that we had been given were we able to give away. That day showed me the pure light of God's sweet love. I returned to college on the last evening of class with this story in hand. I turned in my project, and the instructor read it. Then she looked up at me and said, Can I share this with the class? I slowly nodded as she got the attention of the class, and she began to read. And that's when I knew that we as human beings and being part of God share this need to heal people and to be healed. In my own way, I'd touched the people at McDonald's, my son, the instructor, and every soul that shared the classroom on that last night. I graduated with one of the biggest lessons I would ever learn. And with love and compassion, I encourage you to remember this. Love people and use things. Don't love things and use people. Let's pray.